The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, all you happy warriors, you eager devotees of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Why do I call you happy warriors? Well, because I see every single one of you, regardless of your age or condition, as either a beautiful and nubile woman or a handsome and virile man. No gender spectrum here, no confusion on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, just happy warrior men and happy warrior women. And that's because this show is focused even more on our souls than upon our bodies. And I know that every listener has a young and vibrant soul. What is more, we are all happy warriors because to live productively, you have to fight every single day. We're all happy warriors because to live productively, you have no option. You have to fight, well, for a start, against the force of entropy. The force of entropy, well, that's because God created a world in which chaos and disorder rule. Chaos and disorder have the tide going with them. That's Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And the earth was chaos and confused. The Hebrew, interestingly enough, is tohu bohu. Let me come back to that in just a moment. But surviving every day means fighting against the forces of entropy. The forces of entropy are the natural forces that tend to change order into disorder, that tend to convert pattern into chaos. And that is true for our uh, possessions. If you stop maintaining and working on your possessions, getting your car cleaned and repaired, fixing your house, you end up with these things deteriorated. They start looking disordered and not functioning properly. Uh, Holding your family together, that takes effort on a marital level. For a man to remain faithful to a wife is incredibly challenging. It requires an input of energy every single day. And the truth is that no happy warrior woman would want to be married to a man who lacked so much passion that he didn't even feel the temptation to stray. No, we all want to be men of passion who feel passionately and powerfully but whose ability to resist our ability to fight is almost limitless. Uh, Collecting our money, that takes a fight. Looking after your body, that takes a fight. After all, our natural tendency is to eat too much and exercise too little. But maintaining our body against the forces of entropy, that's a fight. Taking care of your business, your profession, your career, that's a fight every day. Look, that's what we are. We are warriors. Life is a fight, and that is a good thing. To stop fighting or seeking or striving, well, that's just another word for death. And you'll notice that I don't just welcome you as warriors, but I call you happy warriors. Because to throw yourself into the fight... For eight or ten hours a day, six days a week, and I expect nothing less? Well, that's one thing. But to do all that with a debonair smile on your face and a jaunty pace to your stride, to do that while exuding joyful optimism to everybody around you, while you generate an irrepressible surge of happiness welling up in your soul, well, that means that you must be very spiritually grounded in everything that is life-affirming, devoted to your faith, your families, your finances, and your friends, knowing that you can triumph over those who both intentionally and and unknowingly promote a dark abyss 
of satanic secular socialism and all the many destructive and evil social pathologies it generates. When I reveal to you how the world really works, it is in the hope that you will help defeat those pathetic creatures of modern secular fundamentalism, those orphans in history who possess neither Judeo-Christian fortitude nor even pagan ferocity, which would be almost welcome, those hideous hermaphrodites and those fanatical feminists running our media, education, and government bureaucracies who possess neither the strength of real men nor the intuitive wisdom of women. Oh, but they do manage to do a lot of damage. But everything is going to be okay, because here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, I solemnly commit to help you transform timidity to triumph and to replace your diffidence with determination as we study how the world really works and how we convert those studies into practical policies to implement in your families, in your friendships, in your faith, and in your finances. The principle that uh, we live in a world where everything pulls towards disorder is very well established. Uh, physics, the world of physics, recognizes this as something we call entropy, uh, which is to say that uh, if I walk you into my office and you see my desk covered with projects, covered with notes, covered with papers that I have to read and file, and um, you look at it, you shake your head ruefully, and you walk out. The next day you come back, and everything is neat and tidy. There's not a paper to be seen. The, the whole tabletop gleams. And you say, how did that happen? And I say, oh, you know, there was, I left some windows open. There was a bit of a wind and it blew through here. Just tidied everything up. All the papers are in piles. Everything's where it needs to be. You'd laugh at me because the world of nature produces chaos, not order. It produces confusion, not pattern. And... Uh, you would look at my knee table, you'd say somebody was here tidying up. It took human energy to do that. If you look at a jungle converted into a garden, if you look at a swamp converted into a harbor, if you look at a field turned into a factory, you would be right in saying some energetic intelligence was at work here. It took energy to make this happen. Watching a car, if you placed a car in a field and you set up surveillance equipment to watch it for the next 400 years, and you'd watch the car gradually deteriorate. Every day as the sun heated it up and every night it got cold and the summers it was hot and the winters it was cold year after year, the paint would begin to crack rust on the body, the glass would begin to crack from the constant expansion and contraction, and eventually, after a couple of hundred years, you'd see it start falling apart. And you wouldn't be astounded at this change of state. You'd say it's perfectly natural. You know why? Because you are accustomed to the principles of entropy. It's the world in which you've lived all your life, and you know nothing different. And you think it completely natural. But it's really rather extraordinary that we live in a world that favors chaos, that favors confusion, and only allows pattern and order to emerge when a whole lot of energy is put in. And that's really the depiction of the first few verses of the book of Genesis, a, an existing condition of tohu bohu, confusion and chaos, followed by God infusing divine energy. And little by little, we have an ordered and patterned world. There's an English poet, 20th century English poet, called W.H. Arden, 
A-U-D-E-N. Um, I'm fond of him. Uh, some of his stuff is better than others. Uh, I haven't read it all. Um, some of it is, is hard. But I always find that I get my consciousness expanded, my windows open uh, when I read uh, one of his poems. And there's a selection of his poems that I'm already comfortable with and I know, so I usually just go back to the ones I like. Uh, one of them is called In Sickness and in Health. Now, what do you think it's about? Well, um, the marriage service of a number of denominations actually use that phrase in sickness and in health. In other words, these two people, this man and this woman, are being joined together for all time until death and do part in sickness and in health. So not surprisingly, uh, Auden's poem entitled In Sickness and in Health is about marriage. And um, it's 14 stanzas, and uh, it, it takes a little bit of work. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm recommending it because I know you all have busy, productive lives, and the amount of time that you can spend on reading uh, is is limited. Now, of course, if you're spending a lot of time on television um, or on YouTube, well, then by all means, take some of that time and read W.H. Auden's In Sickness and in Health. But I'm only interested in the eighth stanza for today. Let me read the eighth stanza to you. I'm not going to go through it in depth because I really only want to come to the last two lines. But you can, you can sort of get a sense, and it's... Um, Look, there are a lot of things I can do. There are a few things I can do quite well. Um, not many, but there are a few things I can do quite well. I've come to realize there's a whole lot of things I cannot do at all. For instance, acting. Uh, there is a series on Israeli television. It happens to be called Shtisel, S-H-T-I-S-E-L. And it's about a religious family in Jerusalem with their ups and downs and their challenges. And um, uh, you'd, you'd have to be familiar with religious Jewish life in Jerusalem to know just how absolutely brilliant those actors actually are. Um, there's a British series called Doc Martin about a... Uh, a most interesting doctor in the southwest of England, in Cornwall, in in the uh, um, in the it's not the province. Gosh, I've been away from England too long. I forget what the the county of of Cornwall, and uh, um, the acting there as well, extraordinarily good. And and looking at at uh, an episode here and there of Doc Martin or watching Stissel, I've said to myself. This is really rather demoralizing. This is depressing. There's absolutely no way, no matter how hard I tried, it would be like me saying I'm sad about not being able to run 100 meters in 9.8 seconds or whatever Usain Bolt's winning time was at the London Olympics. Um, yeah, you're not going to do it. You know? Well, that I sort of accept. But the thought of never being able to act compellingly or another one to write poetry, no. Um, I write books, and they're important books, but they're important and powerful not because of my writing but because of the ideas and the origin of those ideas. So my books are, are bestsellers, and they're strong and powerful in spite of my writing. I write as best as I can, and I'm getting better at it. But the key thing is the ideas. So I read these few words that make up the eighth stanza of W.H. Uh, Auden's In Sickness and in Health. And I think to myself, I get what he's getting across. And it is so economical in its use of words. I could never do that. But I can enjoy reading it. So you'll see why I'm, I'm, I'm really telling you all this <laughs> only because of one line in the stanza. But here we go. Um, it's eight, eight lines to the stanza. Beloved, we are always in the wrong. 
handling so clumsily our stupid lives, suffering too little or too long, too careful even in our selfish loves. The decorative manias we obey die in grimaces round us every day. Yet through their tohu-bohu comes a voice which utters an absurd command, Rejoice! It's terrific. It's just ter- suffering too little or too long, too careful even our selfish loves. Or the first line, Beloved, we are always in the wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, the decorative manias we obey, you know what those are, all the things around us in society that we think are right and true, and we follow them and we... Uh, we, we pick up habits and customs and, and uh, every fad of the day. He says, well, eventually they die in grimaces around us. And then through all that confusion and chaos comes a voice. All the confusion of normal married life comes a voice which utters an absurd command, rejoice. And the, um, the phrase for all the chaos and confusion is tohu bohu which is a transliteration of the Hebrew in the second verse of the book of Genesis. That's right. And the entire earth was tohu bohu. So it it just gives you another insight into how seminal and foundational ancient Jewish wisdom was to the emergence of Western civilization. That when uh, Auden wrote this poem, and I don't know what the year of the poem was. He died in 1973, I think. So, uh, so it's going to most likely it's an earlier one. You know, I don't know, probably somewhere around about World War II, maybe earlier. But um, it didn't occur to him that people wouldn't know what tohu bohu means. And yet today, I I challenge. I often ask people, right? Tohu bohu, nobody knows it, and yet it's so important because it lies at the heart of our entire understanding of how the world really works. We're living in a world of chaos and confusion. And to the extent that we have a civilized society, well, that's because of a lot of energy put in by our forefathers, by the founders. And right now, Many of the people in the Congress and in the Senate are doing their best to erode it. Many of the people in bureaucracies, many of the people in entertainment are doing everything they can to erode and damage it. But to whatever extent you can drive in a street in your hometown that is not pockmarked with potholes, well, that's because... Somebody takes seriously the obligation to inject energy in the form of monitoring the streets, sending out repair teams, having people work and pouring blacktop and fixing holes in the, in the cement, all of that. The fact that when you walk into a building, the elevator works, that is in defiance of the principle of tohu bohu. That elevator works because of a lot of sane, energetic input. I hope this makes sense because I want to move a little further from there into the application of these principles, or if you like, this foundational principle, to, uh, to a very important part of life. But before we do that, I realized that although the podcast format precludes me taking phone calls, although not entirely. There, there is a way around this. Um, several listeners have been kind enough to contact me at rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, have let me know of technologies that might allow us to have phone calls during the show. But although at the moment we don't have phone calls, what we do have are letters And I realized that every single week, you, you listeners, you happy warriors, send me lots and lots of wonderful letters, letters that boost my spirits, letters 
that uplift me, letters that give me much to think about, often letters that correct something I said or somewhere I misspoke, all of which I appreciate. And so what I'm going to do, and uh, and if you like it, let me know, because if you like it, I will make it a feature of future shows as well. If you don't, this will be the first and last time I try. But I'm actually, I've picked three letters to share with you uh, that I received this last week. Now, you may remember the last week I said something rather dramatic. I said that um, prison is so destructive. Uh, the the whole process of incarceration in our uh, legal, our criminal criminal justice system is so damaging and so destructive and so utterly without much redeeming merit um, that if I had my way, I'd shut down all prisons, let everybody out if that's what it took, and um, I would just have 48 hours advance notice uh, allowing everybody to arm themselves just in case some of the people who are released decide to go back to their old ways, which there's every possibility they will do because prison typically has a very high recidivism rate unless there is a religious, a real religious uh, reawakening in prison, which many people actually do have. Uh, there's a tendency to mock it as a, uh, you know, a prison block uh, repentance, but uh, it's something very real. And the ministry, prison fellowship, uh, the ministry started by the late Charles or Chuck Colson of Watergate fame, great guy was, he was a wonderful man and a good friend. Uh, he, um, he is, his organization is evidence of what I'm talking about. At any rate, I did say that uh, the prison work tends to turn decent men and women into monsters. And I should have said some. I should have been much more um, uh, qualified in that statement. And, um, and I received two wonderful letters. Uh, one says, Hi, Rabbi. I enjoy listening to your podcasts. I've been listening to you since you were on KSFO 560 AM in San Francisco on Sundays. I must say, I miss that show and your interaction with the callers. I just finished listening to your podcast, From Piano Performances to Prisons and Penitentiaries. Though I agree with your premise of changing the criminal justice system, it would not be for the same reasons. You spoke of the cruelty of the prison system. I worked in juvenile corrections for over 20 years in California, and there were staff who were bad, a very small minority. It is no different than other profession, the, any other profession. There are good people, the majority, and you have bad. Those of us who were good people would try to keep those who were cruel in check, as we would say, until they did something that would cost them their job. If I knew I was working with someone who had a tendency to be cruel, I would tell them not to do anything stupid because I would snitch rather than lose my job for them. Again, most of us were really trying on a daily basis to prevent the wards and inmates from victimizing each other. Your ideas of heavy fines, lashings, and execution would probably reduce prison populations immensely and would be far more effective in reducing crime. The large number of people committing crimes is caused by the welfare system and by geeks. <laughs> uh, the author of this letter understands very well that when I speak about public schools, I never call them public schools. I always call them government indoctrination camps, or in other words, GICs, geeks. Please, he continues in his letter, please don't base your opinions of prisons and the people who work there on movies or even news reports, which are almost always negative and incorrect. Yeah, that I can believe. If I had known about you when I was working, I would have used your books and CDs as reference material for small groups and other discussions with the wards and the inmates. I needed to get this off my chest because, as I've said before, the majority of those working in corrections are good, God-fearing, and conservative people. Thank you for all you do, sincerely. And uh, Dave, who wrote this letter, knows that I wrote back. He's already received a reply from me. 
uh, acknowledging his point and thanking him very much indeed. Then uh, I received this one, um, to which I've also responded. Hello, Rabbi. I am a 52-year-old black American bivocational pastor of a tiny church, and I really enjoy listening to your show. I greatly appreciate your insight. I will keep it short due to fear of you not reading the rest of the email. By the way, I, I just want to tell you, Pastor Wayne, I read all the mail. Continues Pastor Wayne, I worked at San Quentin, that is the notorious San Francisco prison. I worked at San Quentin for the last 20 years. Me and my co-workers are not ugly brutes, as you have described us. I'm used to liberals calling us such things, but it had a much greater sting when you said it. And Pastor Wayne, you know by now that I apologize to you in my letter. Anyway, he continues, I never saw brutality nor knew of my co-workers committing brutality. It's against the law, and in these times the law is enforced and we fear the law. Brutality can lead to a felony conviction, which means prison and loss of my retirement pension. No way, Jose, will I tolerate such behavior from my fellow officers, nor would they tolerate it from me. I recognize that I'm not of your status. Now, I have no idea what Pastor Wayne means by that. Like, in what? I recognize that I'm not of your status. Nevertheless, I would love the opportunity to dialogue with you concerning your perspective of prison. I can share my perspective on how stats are twisted, if you dare to be interested. Well, as you know from my letter that you will have received by now, I am most interested. I am sure to hear from you, if you're truly a critical thinker. <laughs> um, by the way, those little challenges are usually the worst way to get me to respond, because I just laugh them off. Uh, I don't think you'll publish my letter because you uh, or you probably won't answer my letter because you don't think I'm worth on you know that's I I just laugh that stuff off um so with uh with no great enthusiasm for the last sentence of your letter Pastor Wayne shalom to you as you uh, finished your salutation and I thank you very much indeed um and I I I apologized for the uh, broad and incorrect characterization. And uh, I want to read one more, if I may. Uh, this takes us a little bit back to the topic for today. Um, here is a letter from Juan. Uh, Juan and his wife, Lena, um, are from Colombia, but uh, they were living in Malaysia, and now they're, well, why didn't I let the letter speak for itself? Dear Rabbi Daniel and Susan Lappin, and, uh, and that's really cool. I appreciate it when people address their letters to us both because we collaborate on, on everything. So everything that goes out under my name, like Thought Tools, has been looked over and contributed to and edited by Susan. And everything that goes out under her name, like Susan's Musings, uh, I've had a chance to add my input and suggestions. So uh, Juan writes, Juan and Lena write, Dear Rabbi Daniel and Susan Lappin, One year ago I reached out to you asking advice for my career. Honestly speaking, I did not know what to... Excuse me, I misread there. Honestly speaking, I did know what to do based on your advice throughout your book, Thou Shall Prosper, Business Secrets from the Bible, and your audio program, Boost Your Income. However... I was in the darkest hour of my career, so I desperately was crying for help. I struggled a lot, but I never surrendered. I continued practicing your teachings and praying. One year later, in December 2018, I joined my new company with many of the changes I was craving for. Praise the Lord. Allow me to give you a little bit of background. My family and I were living in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, which is a Muslim country, he writes, where we experienced firsthand all your teachings about Western civilization and non-Western cultures, 
stressed by the fact that Malaysia holds three different cultures, Malay Muslim, Chinese Taoist, Buddhist Christian, and Indians Hindu Christian. As you can imagine, it was a big-scale social lab for us to understand what you mean. And yes, you are so accurate. There are always exceptions to the rules. But this yardstick measures more than 90%, I would say. I have tens of examples being visiting several countries in Asia. My wife was always very supportive of me, so she was by my side and played a vital role in what we called Networking 2.2. We socialized investing valuable time with valuable people with similar characteristics, such as married, kids of the same age, similar worldview, etc. And yes, it worked out. I landed my new job through one of those exactly valuable friends we were investing valuable time with. We moved to Singapore because of my job last December, which is part of the blessing too. Every time we visited Singapore from Malaysia, we prayed to God to be transferred there, and so he did. Singapore, despite being a majority Taoist Buddhist society, enjoys a free religion society where you can find many Christian denominations and Jews as well. On another note, Singapore is a meritocratic society, whereas Malaysia is an entitlement society due to hidden Sharia law, as I call it, only for Muslims, of course. So, please just move a little bit south your pin on your world map, since this Colombian family is no longer in Malaysia, but in Singapore. Thank you, Juan and Lena. That has been done. You now have a pin in Singapore. Uh, Juan and Lena continue. We are very indebted to you, Rabbi, and to your teachings. We started our journey with Thou Shall Prosper back in 2015. And later on, we started to listen to all your podcast episodes every Sunday since 2016. Thanks for making this world a better place. My wife, Lena, has always wanted to send you a photo of us, your devotees, devoted listeners of your show. And it's signed beautifully, Your Happy Warriors, Juan and Lena. And below their signature is a picture of a very attractive couple, a handsome man and a beautiful woman, and a great-looking little boy. So thank you, Juan and Lena, you happy warriors. I am thrilled to get your letter, and I very much appreciate it. And let us continue now uh, with more of today's topic. If uh, you would like to write, I would love to hear from you. And uh, you would do that by going to our website, www.rabbidaniellappin.com. Or you could go to youneedarabbi.com, same thing. And uh, there's a Contact Us page there just waiting for you to send a letter, which you know I will read, no question about it. And uh, there's every possibility that your letter might be the one I want to read on the show, provided listeners enjoy hearing from other listeners through the mechanism of letters. But at any rate, uh, at the website, uh, you can also subscribe to our mailing lists. We've divided them up so you don't have to get everything or nothing. You might choose to get Susan's Musings. You might choose to get uh, the Thought Tools. Uh, you might choose to get Ask the Rabbi. Uh, at any rate, on the website, you can read the current uh, episode as well as past episodes. And you can also decide whether you wish to subscribe to one or two or three or whatever you want. You can also visit the store. And uh, at the store, you will find, if you are listening to this show fairly close to its original posting date, uh, you will find that for listeners of the show, the, um, uh, the fantastic product, it's a two-hour audio program called Prosperity Power, Connect for Success. 
you will find that it's available for $10. It's a big reduction from its ordinary price. It's a two-hour study program, which um, really is life-changing. Why do I say that? Well, even the letter, the last letter I wrote from Juan and Lena, uh, he talks about employing the strategies from the audio program, Prosperity, Power, Connect for Success. And sure enough, that's what led to his new job, his new career, a relocation to Singapore, which they love. Uh, All of that because of understanding the principles and techniques of Connect for Success. That is the secret of Prosperity Power. So you can go ahead and download that. As soon as we finish today's show, just go to rabbidaniellappin.com, go to the store, look for Prosperity Power Connect for Success audio program, and you download it, and you got it. And you can listen to it. Your uh, business associates can listen to it. I mean, really, they should all buy their own copy, but the the truth is that, uh, that the more people that adopt these principles in prosperity power connect for success uh the better off i am the better off you are uh the better off we all are so take a look at that special uh price for the two-hour audio program which is a fantastic training program uh, that truly changes the way you look at your social connections how you generate nurture and sustain your social connections and uh, what you can appropriately expect from your social connections, the obligations that come with it, the uh, privileges that come with it. Um, It's all, by the way, great stuff to listen to if your children are already teenagers or beyond. No reason at all why you shouldn't make listening to this audio program a, a shared family dinner time experience. If you do that, what I recommend is that Uh, You listen, and there's sort of natural stopping points everywhere. Uh, At a natural stopping point, you stop after it's been going for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, and you you have a chance to discuss the things that have been raised and the issues that have been brought to your attention. So go for it. It's Prosperity Power Connect for Success at RabbiDanielLappin.com. So head over there. Take a look at it. Now, in general terms, if, if you're in business, right, you're in business, and what happens next is that uh, you are trying to decide, you know, how out of the box should you be? After all, you know, there are certain regular things, and, you know, people, some people dress in way out ways, some people uh, entertain themselves in way out ways, so some people... Uh, look at business as an opportunity to be way out. Well, the trouble is that if you are too much out of the box, then you end up a guest of the criminal justice system. But if you're not out of the box enough, you go out of business because if all you're doing is copying other people, you're not innovating any way at all. If you're not distinguishing your service and your goods from those of other people, then you're not going to manage at all. So if you're too much out of the box, you get into trouble. If you're not enough out of the box, you are in a a worse problem, or at least as bad a problem as you're out of business. So what is the thing to do? What is the right thing to do? Well, it turns out that uh, ancient Jewish wisdom does provide an, an answer for that. And uh, that is what I want to share with you. You see, uh, we're all enclosed by boundaries. We're enclosed by boundaries of vision that we are usually the ones responsible for creating. And in order to create a successful business, one has to climb out of those boundaries. We've got one has to transcend them. One has to get out of the box and think a little bit differently. So uh, let me give you an example of um, a company that you know because they have, if you are living in the United States of America, they have an outlet in your town. Uh, that's a company called Home Depot. It's a hardware store. 
And uh, it was started by two Jewish guys, a guy called Bernie Marcus, whom I know, and his partner, Arthur Blank. And uh, these two guys were working for a small hardware store, and they both got fired in 1978. So they had the idea. They said, look, we've got all this experience in hardware. We really know our hammers from our screwdrivers. Why don't we start a hardware store? Well, if all you're going to do is start a hardware store that's exactly like the one that fired you, you are not being motivated by a deep desire to provide something better for the customer. You may be being motivated by just, you know, desires for revenge. You know, we'll teach them. But no, Bernie and Arthur said, no, we are going to do something completely different. What is that? They said, well, we're going to build a big chain of hardware stores. And the result will be that uh, we will be able to provide great service to the customer. And they started uh, promoting that idea to various potential investors, uh, including a, a, a fantastic guy called Ken Langoni, um, was one of the people. And he probably said to them, well, you know, what's your concept? And they said, well, look, uh, the little hardware store that fired us, uh, they sell a hammer for $20. And they buy it from the hammer manufacturer for $10. So they make $10 every time they sell a hammer. But we're going to have hundreds and hundreds of stores. And so we're going to go to the hammer manufacturer and we're going to say to him, Instead of that little hardware store on the corner that maybe buys 10 hammers a month from you, we're going to buy 10,000 hammers a month from you. The hammer manufacturer is going to say, well, that's great, terrific. Um, he says, uh, and they say, look, but because we're buying that huge number, we don't want to pay you $10 per hammer. We're going to pay you $5 a hammer. And the hammer manufacturer says, you know, um, I operate not on the number of things I sell, but on the amount of profit I make. In other words, at the end of the month, I've got to make a certain amount of money. If I can make it by uh, making uh, $4 on every one of 10 hammers I sell, that's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it is if I make only 50 cents on every one of 10,000 hammers I sell. That's much better. So he started selling hammers to Bernie and Arthur for $5. Well, now Bernie and Arthur are able to sell hammers for $15 instead of for $20. And everybody loves that. And little by little, uh, Home Depot expands and grows. Uh, in some cases, they buy out local, regional chains. But whatever it is, they grow. Now, you might say, well, what about all the guys who had little hardware stores on Main Street, USA? And the answer is that... Um, it wasn't great for them. How not great? Well, this is what happened. And here was also uh, part of the cleverness of uh, Bernie and Arthur. They said, look, um, we want to make our store a place where the customer can come in. Even if the customer is not a knowledgeable contractor or handyman, if the customer is just a regular homeowner, we want to have people in Home Depot that can really tell them how to do whatever it is they want to do. And so... All the hundreds and hundreds of little regional hardware stores that basically had to go out of business because Home Depot started offering so much more, a lot of those guys got offered jobs at Home Depot. Now, a lot of those guys who had, used to be former hardware store owners, a lot of them said, you know what? That's great, not to have to worry about payroll, not to have to worry about making rent, uh, to just have a job, a nice job at, at Home Depot. Uh, I'm going to go for that. So a lot of them were very happy to stop being in business and become employees of a successful, profitable company. Others of them said, yeah, you know what, time to retire anyway. We'll call it quits. And then there were others who were miserable. There were others who didn't want to be employees. They wanted to have their own business, and their own business which they knew the hardware business was pretty much over because Home Depot owned it. And for them, they were not happy, however many there were. 
and uh, some of them eventually retired. Others of them found other things to do. But admittedly, there were some obviously not happy. Many of them retired. Many of them took jobs at Home Depot, and the, the world changed and life went on. This was very similar to what happened in the early 1900s, uh, where the, the guy in Detroit who was making wagon wheels and the guy in New York whose job was being a uh, manure sweeper-upper behind the horses in the streets of New York and the guy who was making buggy whips were totally unaware that Henry Ford was figuring out how to build motor cars on an assembly line. And with almost unprecedented rapidity, America changed from a country where short-range transport, you know, you, your cab, your delivery, your every, all in, in, intra-urban uh, transport of people and goods was by horse. Almost overnight, it turned into motorized transport. So guys who were making wagon wheels, guys who were making buggy whips, uh, guys who were sweeping up horse manure, all of a sudden these guys are out of business. So is innovation a terrible thing? No. Many of those guys learned how to change oil in a car. Many of them learned how to make car accessories. Um, some of them retired. Some of them were miserable. That is true. But, um, you know, one, one has to be adaptable. This is what I'm talking about. Uh, Bernie and Arthur got fired from a hardware store. They came up with an idea that brought value to their fellow human beings, a better way for people to buy hardware. All right, that, that's pretty good. Did people miss the old hardware store on the high street? I think yes. You know, I'm, I'm one of those people in a, in a sort of nostalgic kind of a way. Yes. But if I have the choice now of going to a small place, you know, there's, there's a true value near where I live, and I could uh, go in. It's a small, small store. Or if I would travel just a little bit further, I could go to a Home Depot. i got to tell you, my sentimentality about the small local hardware store usually didn't extend to taking my business there. You know why? Because at the end of the day, I'd have to go to Home Depot anyway because they didn't have exactly what I wanted. But Home Depot had the machine screws in three different materials, steel, stainless steel, and brass, and they had it in different pitches and different sizes, I was able to get pretty much exactly what I wanted. So in the final analysis, uh, it's important that sentimentality doesn't take the place of economic reality because most people conduct their own life on the basis of economic realities, not sentimentality. So uh, with progress, are some people hurt? Absolutely. But is it almost always possible to come up with something that is a way for me to serve my fellow human beings within the new paradigm that is being unleashed by the fact that Bernie Marcus and Arthur Blank broke out of the box? They said, hey, there's another way of doing hardware stores completely out of the box. Henry Ford broke out of the box completely. There's another way of doing transport, and it can be done in a way that will allow everybody to participate, not just a few people at the top of the heap. That's obviously so important, breaking out of the box, being able to see possibilities that are not immediately apparent, very important. But on the other hand, if you break out of the box too far, then either you commit a crime or, alternatively, you break out of the box so far that uh, you're out of touch with reality. You don't know how the world really works. And uh, you try and do things that are just not feasible. Sometimes you're a little bit too early. Uh, a friend of mine was a remarkable entrepreneur who started internet radio broadcasting back in, when was it? Uh, I'm, gosh, I'm thinking maybe somewhere around about 2000, somewhere there. And it was a great concept. And I know it's a great concept because now it's all over the place. At the time, internet speeds were not yet able to, to do it properly. 
and people were not accustomed to the idea of listening on the internet and uh, mobile services hadn't got in terms of uh, mobile phones. He was just too early and it didn't work. But uh, that sometimes happens. So how do you know what to do? And so the answer I, I want to give to you today, and, um, and I, I should mention that this came up recently in a coaching session for a business professional um, whom I coach and who had some questions about his business. And so we were talking about exactly these points when I realized um, – even though I can't go into it in the same depth with you that I did with him where we were speaking specifically about his business, um, in, uh, in, in general terms, I can sh certainly impart to you the permanent principles that you are able to apply yourself to whatever circumstances in which you find yourself. So um, we can start off by asking ourselves, look, in the European Union, which you've heard me say numerous times is not long for this world, um, I think everybody is going to be alive still watching the European Union erode and finally fade away. It's uh, for a lot of reasons. But uh, to whatever extent it does work, it works because about 80 million Germans are financing the siestas and the supermarkets and the railways and the retirements of 120 million Greeks and Spaniards and Portuguese and Italians. Uh, Germany is, is the largest contributor to the budget of the EEU. And, um, and uh, the question is, for how long are German citizens going to continue to be willing to underwrite the maintenance of more than a million MENA refugees, Middle East, North African refugees. Forget it. I shouldn't have said refugees. I don't mean refugees. Illegal immigrants. <laughs> Legal immigrants. Uh, for how long are German citizens going to continue paying for the uh, criminal and self-destructive lifestyles of a million foreigners who do not share German values in any way whatsoever, for how long are they going to continue to be willing to underwrite the economies of Portugal and Spain and Greece and Italy? By the way, Italy is now testing out universal basic income. Uh, I'm not sure if it's in the whole country or in parts of the country. I'm not absolutely sure, and it's not relevant for today. But um, basically, anybody who declares himself um, without money can be be paid $785 a month um, in Italy, and that's universal basic income. Uh, it's craziness, right, because people are going to move their incomes underground. They'll start getting paid in cash so they can go ahead and claim this extra. S never mind. There are certain things that are so stupid that um, only a government bureaucrat can come up with, uh, or a committee of government bureaucrats, and they'll have to figure it out for themselves. But right now, um, Germany exported double the total of Greece, Portugal, Spain, and Italy all put together. Um, I checked the sales figures of BMW. Uh, they sell about $86 billion worth of cars a year. Do you hear that? <laughs> Can you believe that? That's what BMW sells. Um, Fiat, an Italian company, Fiat, didn't even get to 40% of their own pathetic sales targets, which were pathetic to, to begin with. As far as Greece is concerned, well, Greece doesn't manufacture cars. As a matter of fact, Greece doesn't even have a bicycle factory. Okay, so why is Germany doing so well? Well, one explanation is that the Protestant Reformation in 1500 was largely centered in Germany, and it left as a legacy to Germany the idea of rel the religion work ethic, and Germany never forgot it. Um, Germany, as a result of the Protestant roots, got a, uh, a real sense of how the world works, 
by the way, British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher had it as well. Do you remember, in, gosh, she was a wonderful, a wonderful Prime Minister, and I know that most people have been trained and indoctrinated and uh, uh, propagandized to deplore her and loathe her. But uh, here's what she said in 1981. My policies are based not on some economic theory, but on things I and millions like me were brought up with, an honest day's work for an honest day's pay, live within your means, put by a nest egg for a rainy day, pay your bills on time, etc., etc. In other words, it's safe to say that when Greeks and Italians, Spaniards and Portuguese start working for more than 30 hours a week, and the same can go for the French, by the way, when they start spending less than they earn, when they start working beyond the age of 50, they'll also be able to live like Germans do. But the, uh, the Protestant work ethic taught a whole lot. Um, there is a German economist, used to be a German economist, called Werner Sombart, Werner Sombart. And his book was called The Jews and Modern Capitalism, which I love. It's a great book. Um, And in it he explained that the religion of people plays a powerful influence on its economic life. And that's absolutely true. I'm not going to take the time now to to lay out why that is. But for the moment, just know that it is the case and put it in the back of your mind as something to read about if you're interested. Um, Anyways, uh, he, he quickly established a strong connection Uh, between Protestant Christianity and capitalism. And then he said, but wait a sec, these characteristics of Protestantism are really derived from Judaism. So really, we shouldn't speak about the Protestant work ethic, we should speak about the Jewish work ethic. And of course, Werner Sombart was, I believe, absolutely correct. Because the, the truth is that there are unchangeable realities about life, And the more we endure the turbulence that swirls around the foundations of our lives, the more we need to depend on those things that never change. So in building our businesses and our financial lifeboats, you and me, all of us, we need to understand these timeless truths, and we need to follow them in our lives. Let me, for those of you who are interested, and again, you all know that uh, the information I share with you is from ancient Jewish wisdom. It's not from my own genius research. It's not from um, uh, the uh, doctoral program at a graduate school that I never did. No, it's, it's none of that. It's from ancient Jewish wisdom. So uh, for those of you who are interested... I refer you to the Bible, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 33. And right there, what's going on, Moses, shortly before his death, uh, provides a sort of prophetic blessing for the 12 tribes of uh, Israel in exactly the same way that many hundreds of years earlier, Jacob had done the same thing before his death for his 12 sons, who later became the foundations of the 12 tribes. And in chapter 33 of Deuteronomy, out of the 12 tribes, only two of them are tre- only once do two of them get treated in one verse. They all get their own verse. But um, Zebulun and Issachar, or as I would say, Zebulun and Issachar, notice that in Hebrew the emphasis goes on the second part of the word. So in English we often we say Zebulun, in Hebrew Zebulun, in he- English we say, I think, Issachar. And in Hebrew, we say Yisachar. Uh, either way, those in chapter 33, verse 18, those go together. And um, they read as follows. To Zavulun, Moses said, rejoice in your bursting out of your limits. And you, Yisachar, rejoice in your tents. And he lumps Zebulun and Yisachar together. Well, what's going on here? Ancient Jewish wisdom explains that Zebulun represents commercial enterprise and wealth creation. Almost every act of entrepreneurial activity requires that we burst outside limits, just like Arthur Blank and Bernie Marcus did, realizing there's a totally new way to sell hardware. 
Uh, it might be a new product, a new way of delivering a service. Basically, thinking outside the box is essential for building a business. Now, Yisachar is what? What does he represent? Well, if you go back to the blessing that uh, Jacob gave to Zebulun, to Zebulun, uh, it was all about ships and the ocean. Now, what did ships and the ocean represent? Travel. What is travel for? Remember, it's only very recently that people travel for pleasure, for tourism, to take photographs, to experience new adventures. This is all a modern result of unbelievable, unprecedented affluence. But in the time of your grandfather, travel was only for one reason, and that is for business. You travel to sell your products, you travel to buy merchandise. That was the only reason people traveled, and that's how it's been for thousands of years. So because Zebulun is given the prophetic blessing of travel, shipping, uh, we understand that he is the spiritual forefather of wealth creation through business. And so now uh, Yisachar is the repository, Zebulun is business, uh, Yisachar is the repository for the timeless truths that anchor us to reality. Um, by the way, if you're interested, in the first book of Chronicles, chapter 12, verse 32, here's, by the way, even if you're not biblically inclined, or if you're an atheist, or you don't, hold, whatever, it doesn't matter where you're from, but the fact that this incredibly influential book that shaped Western civilization has these things to say, I'm hoping you'll find interesting as well. Uh, so, any, I mean, sh you, you've got to have a Bible, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's like, if, if you've got anything of a home library, if you've got books at home, you've got to have a Bible. Uh, first book of Chronicles, chapter 12, verse 32. Here's what it says. And of the sons of Yisachar, they are the knowers of wisdom for all time. By the way, I've noticed so many translations get that wrong, saying they know time. No, anyone who's got, who's got a watch knows time. Uh, they know wisdom for all time. And so why did Moses link the blessings of Zebulun and Issachar in the same verse? To show that they need one another. Zebulun cannot survive without the information, the teachings, the timeless truths of Issachar. In order to succeed financially, Zebulun has to break out beyond the limits, right? Rejoice in your bursting beyond limits. No, no fences. Uh, but you can only do that if you also know the permanent principles. In other words, as I often say, and you've heard me say on this show many times, the more that things change, the more we need to depend on those things that never change. Well, business is about relentless incessant change and the only way to benefit from that to exploit that and to monetize that is to also have access to those things that never change and um, and that's that's how we learn that the talents of both must be linked in order to succeed you you have to so if to succeed like Zebulon at any point you have to escape your comfort zone and you've got to get rid of all stifling restraints while simultaneously absorbing the permanent principles by which the world operates. In other words, knowing how the world really works. So, um, likewise, if you wish to become wise like Yisachar, then you obviously have to increase your understanding of God and his words while simultaneously comprehending the financial realities and the relationship between money and people. Individually and separately, both the scholar and the business professional fail. But together, Zebulun and Yisachar are powerful and unstoppable. In other words, you've got to absorb into your being the spirit of both at the same time. And that's the direction in which success really lies. Does that make sense? I hope it does. And um, uh, by the way, I, I, I should also mention something. Um, 
there have been uh, several people that have sent me uh, a letter at my website, www.rabbidaniellappin.com, asking about information on coaching. Right? Do I coach? Yes, the answer is I do. Um, however, and I hope that none of you are going to report me to the, uh, to the bureaucratic forces of political correctness, to the Stalinist influences in our bureaucracies for saying what I'm about to say. But um, at the present time, I'm only offering coaching to men, not to women. Uh, this is, it's hard for me to say because I don't like uh, saying no to people who ask for my help. Um, however, uh, there are reasons for that. And if, if there's, in, I, I may add on another show, I may explain in detail why it is. Um, the, that's not to say that if, if you are a woman by yourself, and you'll see why I say that, that's not to say you won't benefit greatly from my books, from the audio program, particularly uh, can, uh, Prosperity Power, Connect for Success, which is on a special sale price right now at the store at rabbidaniellappin.com. Prosperity Power, Connect for Success, audio program. Of course you'll benefit from those things. But if you are a married woman, the very best thing you can do is make sure your husband studies ancient Jewish wisdom. I hope you hear what I'm carefully trying to say. Uh, I can, at the moment, only effectively coach men. And for the uh, price I have to charge, because my time is what my time is, and uh, coaching is, um, is, is time-consuming. In other words, it's not like selling a book. Um, it's, it's actually hours on the telephone working through specific issues, right? Uh, and so for, to make sure that I am fully effective and that I am delivering value, uh, I can only coach men, not, uh, not women, unfortunately, as things stand. Is that going to change? I can't say right now. But uh, for the present, that is where things are. Anyways, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I thank you very much indeed for being part of the show. I appreciate your letters. Don't forget to go to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, become part of my community there. Connect with me there, and um, also take a look at uh, the audio program I've been talking about. And uh, have yourselves a fantastic week of good times with your friends, your family, yes, your faith, and, of course, your finances. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.